This is Prayer Room Companion, episode 71, recorded September 28th, 2011. What We Can't Not Know. Welcome to This Week in Prayer Room Companion. I am your host extraordinaire. Wait, that's me, Chris Bergwald. <laughs> and with me, the co-host extraordinaire. Father Andrew Dickinson, who offers up his suffering in this valley of darkness oh, and tears. Wow. Known as Prairie. I walk through the valley of the darkness of inane conversation. <laughs> I shall fear no boredom. Actually, it wasn't the inane conversation of the boredom. It was the unprofessionalism of the silent pause as you forgot your name. Unprofessionalism. No, I was... Lack of professionalism? Is this professional at all to begin with? I mean, how can there be a lack of something no. that's not present? Yeah. <laughs> Podcasts are the ham radio of the 21st century. Well said. Although ham radio is still around, so I don't. What's 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 ham radio of in the 21st century? Ham radio is the smoke signals of the 20th century. All right, there we go. So, uh, hey, Father, how's the weather in Brookings? Windy, really warm, warm. Oh. nice, enjoyable. Likewise here. But maybe a little we're bit. in a fire hazard, actually, as far as it, we're so dry up here. Wow. I, don't I can't remember the last good rain we've had. It's been well into July. and so. There you go. So Father and I, several months ago, well, I think July, um, we, we talked about maybe periodically discussing a book for one of our, uh, one of our weekly episodes. Um, I think, Father, you had already picked up uh, the, the book we're going to talk about today at that time and proposed it, and I was familiar with it and the author. Um, I hope, Father, you've done some prep. Do some quick prep, Father, with the author, if you know what I mean, while I introduce the book. Um, so we, we decided to, we agreed on the book, and then we spent, the well, Father spent the last couple of months reading the book, and I spent the last week reading the book <laughs> to get it done for today because we agreed that uh, today, September 28th, we would discuss this book um, podcast. 29th. 29th. It's Thursday, not Wednesday. Um, the title of the book, What We Can't Not Know, the revised and expanded edition. Sorry, What We Can't Not Know, a guide by Jay. Father, your prep. Bud Zizeski. Oh, boy. Um, I don't know if that's right, but just roll with J it. Jay, we apologize. We don't know how to pronounce Polish names. Except for Wojtyła. Except for Wojtyła. It seems to me that if you try to pronounce it in a stronger way in that way, then you can... Anyways. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, Jay... Jay who is a philosopher, uh, a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas, Austin. Um, I, I've, I'm familiar with his big, work. Which is the big Texas university. It is. Um, I've been familiar with his work for a while. He, he was, um, well, he's a Catholic now. He'd been an evangelical. He was an atheist prior to that. So at some point he came out of his atheism into Christianity, evangelical Christianity. And then several years ago now, um, five, six, seven maybe years ago, um, he uh, he entered into full communion with the Catholic Church, and we are happy to have him. He's a, he's a fine scholar. Uh, <laughs> he's a fine scholar who's written a number of books along the lines of what this book is about, which uh, is about the natural law, uh, which we'll explain um, as we go here. Maybe a good way to do that would be to look at the title itself, What We Can't Not Know. Father, what does the title mean? 
It means double negatives are back, baby. Yeah, I missed them. Yeah. <laughs> I've missed double negatives. Uh, what we can't not know. So, uh, the author... Uh, Jay. Jay. So, Jay says that there is certain things in common to all uh, human nature that it's actually impossible to not know. Everyone knows them in some way. Uh, we might know them maybe nascently, maybe in seminal form and seed form, but as we go through life, this knowledge is established and discovered and founded within us in certain ways that, that any child learns and discovers the simple truths which uh, historically I refer to as the natural law. Uh, these self-evident truths, we might call them, common to all humanity, uh, it's impossible to not know them, although it is possible to fool yourself into disbelieving them or thinking that they aren't common or aren't real. Yeah, and what one of the interesting things to me, we can't not know them. At the same time, he makes a, he makes a point, and he spent some time on this, probably more time than we'll be able to. They're not innate, though. Um, they're, as soon as our reason is awakened, what, what in, in, oftentimes uh, we, in, in, in the Catholic Church, we talk about the age of reason at the point at which, um, at least for us as uh, Roman Catholics, Catholics in, in the Latin rite, the Western Church, age of reason is when you can receive the sacraments of, of uh, reconciliation and, um, and First Holy Communion in normal circumstances. The age of reason, when your 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 mind, you, you become self-aware, uh, and you reach a certain level of cognitive uh, skills, for lack of a better word, right now, and it, and it's at that point that w when we become aware of ourselves and the world around us at, at a certain level, we start certain things just automatically with that level of awareness. Certain things just click into place. Things that we can't not know. So it's not that they're necessarily there at birth um, so much as we just become aware of them when we become self-aware, much like Skynet. <laughs> Skynet, of course, being a reference to a horribly failed movie franchise from the 1980s, 90s, and the 2000s known as the Terminator film. Horribly failed franchise. Isn't that a little bit harsh? I mean, yeah. one, and, one and two are pretty good. <laughs> Three, no. Anyway, so we digress once again. Um, so that's what, yeah, that's what the title. What we can't not know. And Father, I think I may have stepped on your toes, so to speak. Was there something else that you were going to say, just in, the, in that broad sense of, of what the title and what natural law is? When I interjected. Well, yeah, and it was a good interjection. Uh, but I think then the other part is that the, that this information, then this knowledge, is the foundation of common human law and the foundational aspect of almost all society. Absolutely. So, so um, because we, all of us as, as, as human beings can't not know these truths, they do provide a common foundation. It's part of human nature to be aware of these truths, these realities, uh, and so provides a common foundation for, for, um, for us to live together, for politics politics in, in the, the, the most fundamental sense. Um, speaking of which, by the way, um, politics in the fundamental sense, I'm reminded of it, politics and Aristotle's politics. Uh, it's a point worth making that the natural law tradition predates Christianity and really um, grew in a sense. I mean, you can find it and, and 
um, Jay talks in the book about how you find it in many of the great religious traditions, but but uh, it's it's maybe associated in a particular way with the um, the the Greek the tradition of Greek philosophy, the Socratic tradition, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, or Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, as Bill and Ted call him. Um, Whoa, dude. Um, so going going back, and then certainly it was in a very definitive way taken up by the church early on. Uh, Any time in Catholic circles, at least or Christian circles, there's a discussion about natural law. There's reference to Saint Paul's letter to the church in Rome, um, first first Roman, the first chapter of Romans. <laughs> Saint Paul talks, yeah, first Romans as opposed to second Romans. Um, I know the Bible so well, as you know. Anyway, um, reference to. To, to the Gentiles and the law that was written on their hearts. Paul speaks about how, how God speaks to all of us, not just to, to the Israelites, the Jews, but to all of humanity is written a law on their hearts, which again they become aware of um, at the age of reason. So, so this, is, this is not exclusively Christian or really religious in any sense, the, the theory or the doctrine of the natural law. So, um, anything else in terms of introduction, Father, that you want to note? Um, I think maybe the final point is I, he's writing it for a, uh, uh, an internal audience, in a sense. Uh, he's writing the book for uh, Christians and, uh, and Catholics, but for, I think, the writer Christian audience. And anyone else who wants to read it, but he's definitely writing from that perspective, which he says is just part of an intellectual honesty, I think, uh, and also uh, he just figures is uh, for him is the best way to honestly have dialogue and engagement on the topic is uh, to do it in that sort of way. Yeah, this is so I, I mentioned this is, this is the second edition, the revised and expanded edition um, in the preface to the first edition. The preface is titled whom this book is for and the subtitle of the preface is the persuaded, the half persuaded and the wish I were persuaded. So those people who are um, who are already on board, who are kind of on board, or who want to be on board in terms of the natural law, that's who this book is for. Um, it isn't um, for the I'm not interested in being persuaded crowd. He says, it isn't that I'm not interested in the others, but one cannot do everything at once, and at the moment I'm not trying to convert. Convincing dissenters that they too really know what I claim they know is a task for another time, and although I do offer a few suggestions about how to do that, it's not what I'm doing here. So that, yeah, Father, this certainly isn't a book that you, somebody who um, uh, does not at all, is a complete relativist and, and, and refuses to believe in the idea of an objective, um, universal, moral law. This is not a book that you're going to hand them and say, read this and you'll, your eyes will be opened. Their eyes might be opened, but as, as, as Jay says in his preface, that preface, that's not who he's writing the book for. Right, right. And so, and yeah, and it, it's also not going to be a cookbook, you know, uh, uh, an instruction book of, you know, follow these five steps and you'll convince anyone about the existence of and the necessity of the natural law. So, Father, who would you, I mean, it, I mean he sort of, in a broad sense, he gives his audience. Um, what sort of person do you think, just on a more concrete way, would you give this to? Uh, anyone I think that's seriously interested in engaging the culture. Um, I think anyone, I, I'd recommend it for any of my college students that think they want to get into politics. Mm. You know, I think it'd be good to start learning and be exposed to that foundation um, of these things. 
Uh, I think it'd be good, for, or for any uh, any layman or woman out there who wants to be interested in po- uh, politics, public policy, things of that sort. Um, actually, I, we might end up. Uh, I have a faculty staff fellowship uh, meets twice a month, and uh, we used a little bit of this. Uh, we actually talked about our previous podcast, which I believe was on the uh, uh, Christian Smith research or yeah. from a couple of podcasts ago. Yeah. And I used some of uh, this book to back up uh, that podcast and that discussion to try and leaven it. And they really enjoyed the section that they did read uh, of the book. And uh, so they think, well, maybe we can go through this book a little more. So maybe we might. Very good. Yeah, I think those who are interested in, in cultural engagement politics, I think it's very well well stated that that'd be a, a great audience. Um, somebody who might be interested in reading um, a book like that, or like this. Um, so this, what's what's the structure of the book then, Father? Well, he has it in four uh, sections, but I really kind of think of them in a certain way. It has three sections, uh, but four sections. Um, the first one, and he, he refers to the natural law or what we can't not know as a lost world. Ooh. A lost world. And uh, I think partially because it is a whole world view, uh, most certainly. Um, it is a, a whole world view, a, a whole idea of, of a way of looking at the world. It's also uh, a world that can be explored and be known and discovered. Discoveries can be made uh, in this world and as this world interacts with our current world in age and day. So uh, the first two sections, he'll talk about the lost world and the lost world explained, where essentially just Kevin Kiss says, this is the natural law. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he has uh, two follow-up sections on how uh, the lost world was lost. So how did it become? A, uh, how did it, how did we get to the point where many of us think that we can't know these things? Right. Um, I, I think there's one author who, uh, Peter Kreeft, will say that in some ways. Peter Kreeft is a, a philosophy professor from Boston College. He'll say that we are um, too intellectually humble, or, or falsely intellectual, falsely humbly in terms of our intellect. That we say there's some things that we can't know. And uh, that's kind of the state of where we are uh, intellectually and culturally in regards to these things. So he'll kind of explain how we lost the world of natural law and then how we can rediscover uh, and, and uh, try to uh, bring it about again. You know, just uh, and I think we've touched on this in a prior episode on the whole point of false intellectual humility. Um, it's ironic, and, and many people pointed this out, it's certainly not original to me, um, it's ironic, you know, the Enlightenment, the, the philosophers and the philosophy of the Enlightenment said that, uh, that religion, Christianity and Catholicism in particular, was holding back the human intellect, the human spirit um, with superstition. The, all the things we hear about the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, superstition and so on. So in order for human reason to really achieve what it's capable of, it needs to throw off the shackles of faith. Um, and so it did that. Uh, and then in the late 19th and then into the 20th century, it, so that, that sort of period was the modern period, but then we moved into the postmodern period where now <laughs> we say the human intellect can't really know anything. Yeah. What do we really know? So as, as reason divorced itself from faith, it lost itself, to use the, 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 the imagery of being lost. Um, John Paul II's great encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. He begins uh, with, with the image of the human spirit soaring on, on two wings, 
faith and reason, rising up to the transcendent, to God. Um, so it just, you know, that's just the irony of, and some people say postmodernism is really hypermodernism. It's just modernism, the, 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 the logical consequences, the natural conclusion of modernism uh, to deny the importance of faith for the sake of reason ultimately leads to the denial of reason itself. So anyway, excursus over and out. Good excursus. Thank you. So um, any, what, what particular parts of the book really intrigued you, Father? Uh, a couple different parts. I, I really enjoyed his uh, description of uh, a natural law. He'll talk about uh, four witnesses uh, to the natural law, which I thought just a, a very nice way to describe them. And I think it just the notion of them be, there being witness, pardon me, witnesses to it. You know, it, it is a world that does exist. And so it's witnessed by different things and different things that we can encounter and know. Um, and so uh, uh, this is the, the section he says, um, talking about uh, classical versus modern education. Classical education taught pupils that there is some real moral knowledge in the universe and the universal common sense of plain people. The task was not to get free of it, but to refine it. By contrast, modern education teaches its pupils to distance themselves from this common moral sense, to call it not knowledge, but belief. A person of modern education wants to know how we know before deciding what we know. Mm. He demands a critique of the faculty of knowing before conceding that he knows anything at all. And so, you know, he, he really wants to go on this whole idea then of, of witness then, that there is a witness to... Um, uh, to the natural law that, that that can be known by all, and so, or I should say, there's four witnesses in this way, which kind of, uh, which is a good way of saying just in the way that we think in our uh, modern educated minds. Right. What what uh, what chapter is that from again? Did you say? Probably that's chapter four. Chapter four. Okay. All right. The witnesses. Okay. Eighty-five for those of you following along with your own copy. Amen. Of Jay's book, What We Can't Not Know, available from Ignatius Press. Indeed. Visit Ignatius Press online. At Ignatius.com. We, uh, we should get them as a sponsor. We should. That'd be good. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> what else? Or, <laughs> yeah, probably. Not, the, the, uh, yeah. So he goes on to say that there's four witnesses, uh, what he calls uh, deep conscience, uh, design as such, the witness of our own design, and the witness of natural consequences. Okay. Um, and uh, but just uh, just a nice way of uh, of looking at these uh, these things, uh, thinking about it in that way. Okay. I um my my favorite chapter was from the the third part third part of the book again how the, how the lost world was lost chapter seven is on denial and I, and I think you might speak more about that um, chapter eight is called eclipse and the subtitle for chapter eight is how other factors have contributed to the to the eclipse of the natural law um, and and he's speaking here more about um, the pre previous chapter sort of at the individual level chapter eight is on um, the level of, uh, of civilization more broadly of a culture um, so for he says in the introduction to this chapter, so far I have discussed the eclipse of the natural law mainly from the perspective of individual conscience. But how does it come about that an entire culture passes into shadow? 
Such things are not well understood. And if you obvious things can be said about our own case. So he goes through what he sees as some of the other factors that have led to this loss of uh, this forgetting of those things that we can't not know. The, the loss of, of the natural law or awareness of the natural law um, in, in Western culture. And I just want to go, th- I'm just going to go through, first of all, and mention what those factors are, and, and maybe talk a little bit about a couple of them in particular. So the first one is the atrophy of tradition, um, and I'm going to come back to that one. The second one, he identifies the cult of the expert, how in our, uh, in our day and age um, we have expertitis. Um, we we mm-hmm. give great deference to um, real or alleged experts in particular. He has a great line in there, the modern age is not the age of the common man, it is the age of the expert. Yeah, exactly. Um, the third factor he sees uh, uh, for the reason of the eclipse, the return of the sophist. So the sophist, ancient Greek uh, philosophical school, uh, this is where we get the word sophistry. Um, the sophists weren't interested so much in truth as they were in argument. They, they made themselves, avail- they were the first professional philosophers in the sense of those who were willing to hire themselves out um, f- to the highest bidder. Uh, to to give the, their clients uh, um, the keys to winning any argument from whatever perspective, so they weren't interested like like uh, the Socratic Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the Socratic tradition, in discovering the truth of reality, the nature of reality, uh, the way things are. They were more interested in um, helping people uh, figure out and determine uh, the best way to win an argument. He has a great little description of that where he says, for the sophist training, uh, man is the measure of all things, but man has no fixed nature. Man measures all things then by his words, but words have no fixed meanings. Language is not an instrument for finding truth, which we might call dialogue or discussion. Language is not an instrument for finding truth, but for changing it. And those who master language master everything. Absolutely. And he goes. He spends a little time on the, on how uh, sophistries uh, the retur- the sophists are back, so to speak. Uh, the next section, the next factor, the infantile regression of public reflection, um, <laughs> which is uh, yeah, all too apt in a description of of modern culture. Um, just we we don't we. I, I think of specialization in knowledge. Like many of us uh, know a lot about a particular area. Maybe we're getting a college degree in or our, our graduate work in for, for those who have gone on to higher studies even more. Know a lot about those particular areas, but we can't think really at all outside of them. We, we, our, our, the, the ability to, of the public, broadly speaking, to reflect um, is is weak, <laughs> very weak, to put it mildly. Um, Attention spans shrink from want of exercise, he says. Indeed. Um, thank you, Internet. Um, the next section, the disabling of shock and shame, um, just the coarseness of, of, of uh, popular culture. And then another factor, the prolongation of adolescence, which many people, have rem- many, many people have remarked upon. Um, yeah. And he makes a great point in here. I don't know if I could put my finger right on it, but um, here it is. For centuries, most people married and began families in their teens. This is on page 189 for those of you following along. If today they are not quite ready until 25 or 30 or 35, then our first question ought to be, why aren't they? 
We should also pause. This is the point. We should also pause to consider how maturity is attained. Men and women do not first become mature and then accept responsibilities. It is through accepting responsibilities that they become mature. I think that that's a great point, and I, I do think that it's common for us to flip it. Well, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to settle. Once I mature, I'll settle down and so on. No, no, no. It's by when you're ready for. When you're ready for it, then I'll let you use it. Exactly. No, it, 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 his point is it's by accepting the responsibilities that we become mature. And I think that's a, that's a very astute observation. And then um, the final factor, the cult of feelings, um, which, of course, is, uh, many people have also commented on. And he goes through um, how uh, feelings are adored in seven different varieties in our, in our Trust your feelings. Indeed, indeed. Nicely oh, done. Did I just uh, try to put together Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi with that? <laughs> I think you did. Um, Actually, that's okay. George Lucas is going to do that in the next revision. Oh, let's not talk about that. Uh, and so he goes through the, all different ways that we adore feelings, so to speak, in our society. But the, the, I want to come back to the first one just briefly, Father, and, uh, and then I'll let you talk again. Um, the atrophy of tradition. You know, one of the points he makes in the preface to the second edition, and now he addresses it here again. Um, in the Enlightenment, they said, you know, we don't need, what we need is to have this neutral stance from which we can determine the natural law. And that doesn't, a, a traditionless perspective where we're not influenced by a priori and so on. And um, Jay makes the point in this section that that's impossible. We all come from a particular tradition. Um, we all have traditions. Uh, he says, in our time, many people are traditionless. Of course, this is but a way of speaking, for scorn of traditions can itself be transmitted traditionally, and it is. Traditionlessness, then, is not the absence of traditions so much as a particular unsound sort of tradition that does not recognize itself as tradition, disbelieves what it, what it does recognize as tradition, and is traditionally smug about its disbelief. It is the absence not of traditions as such, but of sound ones. In other times and places, traditions have gone bad. In other ways, in ours, it happens this way. Uh, and then he gives a, a lot of examples. And I, I think, again, that's a, an, an important point, I think, we're talking about the natural law and engaging. It's not, we can't, we do it from a tradition. And in fact, he makes the point in the book that we need tradition to really embrace the natural law in its fullness. We can't have, attempt this sort of third person neutral stance of observation. It, it's, it's through certain traditions, through certain practices, through certain ways of understanding the world that we can really embrace the natural law in its fullness. And in our day and age, people try to have well, in fact, do have a tradi traditionless tradition. Yeah, traditionless tradition, which doesn't even recognize that it is a tradition. Right. So, anyway. You believe in nothing and you believe in anything. Indeed. So that was my favorite chapter, Father. I, in, in any, anything else that you want to talk about, things that struck you? Uh, I, I think something really worth reading. I, think, I don't think we'd have the time to go through it in, uh, in full, but as a section of the five furies, maybe even another podcast on this, uh, you know, with, with the importance of conscience, especially in our own day and age, you know, follow your conscience, you know, uh, right. and you'll never be wrong. But our conscience, you know, it, uh, when we do things wrong, our conscience does strike back at us in certain ways. We don't know how to handle it, you know, uh, and, and we can see this so much. This is how in many ways we lose track of the natural on our own personal lives. 
Um, and I see it as a, as, a, as a spiritual physician, if you will, as a Catholic priest, as a, a confessor, um, especially in the atmosphere of a college campus, of how uh, just in various ways these five theories, you know, remorse, uh, pardon me, remorse, confession, I didn't find the full list, so I'm flipping through, atonement, uh, reconciliation, and justification. So, uh, remorse, confession, atonement, reconciliation, and justification. And these are things our conscience wants to do when we violated the natural law, and we violated that, uh, 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 that simple, easy-to-know knowledge, but we don't know how to handle the way it strikes against us. And he throws out the example on remorse, uh, saying uh, uh, that maybe many people might know or recognize, a drunk is ashamed of being a drunk, and so he gets drunk. Um, and so it's yeah, I, a, go ahead. I just that was a great. I mean, that just I've experienced that in my own life in different you know in different phases with different sins. Um, just the the strange the, the the paradox of that, but yet it's it's a reality of of the human condition. Exactly. And it's the way that he describes those five theories, and he'll, he'll focus a little bit in on uh, uh, the rally of abortion in our culture in that way, but um, it's, uh, it's good. And, you know, maybe even sometime another prayer room companion on the five furies, because would that be just a catchy title? Yep, I think it would be. That'd be a great one. Maybe we'll do that next week. Who Let me figure out how to pronounce his name. We'll do that before next week, too. So... All right, well, actually, so why don't we go ahead and, and uh, we could pick this up and, and maybe talk more about um, uh, the five furies uh, next time. How does that sound to you? Then? Yeah, and then maybe rack up any uh, final comments and maybe critiques you might have on this book. That sounds great. Okay, all right, Bye. thanks, Father. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Pray Your Own Companion. Thanks, God bless. God bless. God bless.